0: Hey, this is Maureen with a pre-show correction. Throughout the show, you'll hear me referring to a really good TV show in the 90s, Criminal Investigation, with Bill Curtis. Well, it was really good, but it wasn't called Criminal Investigation. It was called Investigative Reports. So, duh, on me, I could have just pasted in investigative reports every time I say criminal investigation, but I wouldn't have been fooling you guys, and it would have sounded like shit. So just keep that in mind as you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. (laughs)
1: is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken and this is Crime and Stuff. And this is our 15th episode. 15. Do do you think I have to say that every episode now which one it is? Um, I I don't know. Yeah
0: why Mm. not? And I always get excited. Yeah me too. I'm always excited. And we were delayed tonight in getting going because we're still trying to figure out our Technical issues. Our technical
1: issues, which and you should address the Chandra Levy episode. That was actually my segue into addressing the Chandra. So
0: after we recorded episode 13, which was the Chandra Levy episode, which just dropped last week, I realized that in my cutting and pasting of my script, I had accidentally removed almost a page. (laughs) I, (laughs) I had cut it and not pasted. It back and it was important information. So I thought what the heck if I just sit in the same place and put the microphone in the same place and record the same way it'll sound just like that I can just seamlessly paste it in and obviously that's not what happened. We, we had don't... some feedback on it. Yes but... and you know we don't have to tell you guys this we could just pretend it you know just go on our merry way but we feel we're we very... We like to be
1: transparent. We are very
0: transparent. <laughs> Some people would say it's a TMI situation, <laughs> but I felt like in one thing I was thinking was, you know, I should just leave it alone. We've already recorded. But on the other hand, I felt like it was important information to get in there. You don't want there. to
1: shortchange all our fans. We, we
0: don't. And well, and it's one thing too when I'm listening to a podcast that's describing a murder or something, or when I even watching a documentary if there's holes in it and stuff, it bothers me. Yes. And no. we're just we just have faith in you guys that you would rather have those holes filled, and the sound quality be a little odd. And it wasn't bad sound quality. It just sounded different. Yeah, it was an obvious was cut and paste in a couple yes. of places. And, so and I wasn't there up. in the background. And you weren't there in the background asking important questions. <laughs> or making Same weird. Like, no,
1: I notice I make weird noises. <laughs> you time. do, yeah. Well, um, you're like agreeing with me and going, hmm. I'm the Ed McMahon of the show. And I, I
0: also have an update on Ooh. episode two, way back when. It oh, seems so long ago. We, in November, we did Todd Colehep. The South Uh, Carolina serial killer. And he was indicted February 28th, not only on the murder charges and other things, but they had added a criminal sexual conduct first degree charge. Kayla Brown, one of his victims who he didn't kill, she's the one they found in the storage Uh. container after three months was on Dr. Phil and talked about how she was raped twice a day. Huh, that I didn't assume surprise she, me. I assumed that. I that, assumed that, yeah. too. And I assume also she told the police that as well, well and not yeah. just Dr. Phil, and they didn't find it out Although from watching. Although Dr.
1: Phil is very, you know. He has a way of getting information yes. out of people.
0: So he was indicted February 28th. He was in court for a, a preliminary hearing the other day, and we'll have more on what happens to him. Also, just to update a little, in court documents, some other stuff came out. He was, by the way, for those of you just catching up, he's charged with killing four people from a motorcycle shop years before that. It
1: was 2007? Yes. When he did it. But they didn't catch him until he confessed. Right,
0: that he confessed after Kayla Brown was found in that storage container. He killed Kayla Brown's partner. He also killed (sighs) Johnny and Megan Coxey in December 2015. And in the court documents that came out, he told investigators... That he had hired the Coxies to clean his property and homes for sale, and that the day that he killed them, December 19th, or killed Johnny, December 19th, 2015, he said while he was delivering cleaning supplies to them, Johnny tried to rob him. Yeah, So right. he shot Johnny twice in the chest, and then he restrained Megan... And went back to shooting Johnny a little more. And he put Megan in the storage container uh, where she was where for he, six days. Where I'm sure, raped her. Yes, where I'm sure for six days. And then he said she did something to make him mad, so he shot her. It wasn't known at the time when he had killed them. Their bodies were found on his property, but it wasn't known when he had killed them or what the circumstances were. So he's charged with seven murders, including the four victims of the Superbike motorsports. And that's just an update and we'll keep Ugh. track of him. And one thing that we'll find was true of him and we've talked about will also be true in my topic tonight. He obviously had mental health issues and I'm not excusing him, but people, especially the people closest to people like that, often are in denial or don't understand the significance of the mental health issues are just dumb asses and it exacerbates the issue and leads to people dying and stuff. And that yes. leads to tonight's. Well, first, we're going to start. You and I were both independently watching 48 Hours Mystery, a two part episode called Stalking that just came out on our yes. app, at least. With and that, as we tend that to. That
1: girl from. Uh,
0: Christy Grimmy. Christy, no, the actress. Polly. I'm going to get tall now. Uh. Polly Perrette <laughs> from SCIS. But as we tend to do sometimes at night when we're in our homes watching stuff, we were texting each other. Oh, yes, yes. And. So we have I have a little text exchange that illustrates some of the stuff we're
1: going to be doing. Oh, so out. are we going to do a dramatic reading? We're going to do a dramatic okay. reading. You
0: don't want to hear all our texts because some of them would make your hair stand on yeah, end. I think head. some people would get pissed off. And all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> but so we're going to, we'll just read, you read yours and I'll read mine. Okay, okay? so I start? So, actually I do. Oh, wait a minute. Um, um, no. Well, it's I, no, I just want act, to, no, actually there's just something I want to say or it's going to be confusing to people. And then we can start. Okay. When I was watching this, you know, people tend to ask me as an author who would play my characters in movies, and to me, they're real people, and <laughs> I, okay, I'm not going to go into all of them. this isn't a shameless plug, there's a, re- there's context no, to this. No, I you know, I'm not saying okay. it's a shameless plug. So, it's anyway, nice. there's a psychiatrist on this 48 Hours Mystery, who I developed a little crush on
1: <laughs> yes. while I was watching it,
0: and also... He's. He reminds me of somebody who might be
1: Pete, the police chief in my books. A little bit, not He totally. didn't remind me because he was a little too clean cut. But.
0: He was a little too clean cut and maybe a little... Wimpy-ish, sure, yeah. but, but he was—he had some aspects, and maybe it's just because I had a crush on him. I developed this crush okay. within minutes of watching him on TV, and I don't know why. Okay. It's unexplained. And the
1: other thing it's is not an obsession. So Becky, why don't you start? I don't know what kind of tone of voice to use for my text. Just pretend. To,
0: just do. You do pretty good imitations of other people when you're reading their texts. I feel.
1: <laughs> I feel like a lot of the issues these victims have are because they are women. I mean, issues with the fucking cops. Exactly. Except for the Pete guy. He seems understanding. I can't wait to stalk him. Maybe I'll just stalk one of my neighbors. That would be pretty easy and I wouldn't have to do much.
0: Yeah, it seems like a lot of work. With the Pete guy, you know, I think I'll just call him Pete. It wouldn't really be stalking because I I felt like his soul was reaching out to me through the screen and he wants me to go with him and be with him. I think I'll send him an email every hour just so he'll know our love is real. I'm going to drive to California tomorrow so we can be
1: together. But it's not stalking because I can tell he wants it too. I'm sure Pete would appreciate you letting him know how you feel. Who who could object to someone sharing their love? I'm thinking of wearing a wedding dress to meet him so he can see I know how deep our love is. Or just go naked under your coat. Ooh
0: yeah, so sexy. I think I'll break into his house and hide in his bed, too, for when he gets home. He'll like that. Who wouldn't? I can tell just by seeing him on TV that he really gets me and wants us to be together.
1: That's the end of it. Oh, okay.
0: I think earlier, too, you were speculating maybe on stalking the governor of Maine, Paula Page. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't you texted me about that? Well, I think it
1: started because it said the guy that... The the what, guy that killed Chrissy. Yes, Murray. it said he, he started stalking her and he lost fifty pounds to make himself look better. And I said maybe I should start stalking somebody. I could lose fifty pounds. Yeah. Then I thought, yeah, the governor. He's lost a lot of weight. He had gastrointestinal surgery. Whatever. Yeah. But I was just joking because I actually do not find the man attractive.
0: No, in any way no matter what or weight
1: before. he weighs. But, but as you'll but see. But I was from, joking. So.
0: Right, and <laughs> and stalking is not a laughing matter. No, it is. Although we, we laugh, laugh at it, people laugh. People joke, like you know how, like when you, you know, like somebody or are dating somebody, but it's not going well or something. How you drive by their house a lot to see if they're home or what they're doing or if someone else is there. And I know neither of us have ever done that, and nobody I know has ever done that. But well, not
1: even the, if it's not going well. What if you just ha- like somebody and, this and is you, all drive, theoretical. you drive, drive by, by their the house, house with But now friends. you can just Facebook stalk I know. it makes so The so Internet makes things a but, lot easier. But some
0: people make jokes about that, and remember how on Two and a Half Men, like the first season it was actually kind of funny, oh, that and neighbor Charlie that had a stalker. The girl like, from by, Beautiful uh, Creek. Yeah, you know, what's her name? Linsky. It, well, the point is we laugh about stalking because I'm really not a stalker and you're not a stalker. Actually stalking is a very wide-ranging issue. It's common. We hear about it a lot in the context of celebrity stalking but it's much more common for normal people who have been in relationships with somebody. It's a real issue that covers the spectrum from inadequate mental health services and recognition of mental health to the ubiquity of social media to the downplaying of domestic violence issues to inadequate laws the availability of guns and I know I know that all sounds boring but it's really not boring and the 48 hours we both watched hinged on the murder of, as we said Chrissy Grimmy mm-hmm. Christina Grimmy who was a singing sensation she rose to fame on YouTube and was on The Voice a couple years ago and she was shot to death after a show in Orlando in June 2016 so let's start with that Chrissy Grimmy, 22 was a lovely young woman who seemed really happy and open and ready for big things. She didn't know Kevin Loybel and I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing his name Fuck right. Fuck him. I know, he doesn't deserve to have his name pronounced That's right. That's right. She knew nothing about him when he approached her after her June 10th show in Orlando, Florida, but she opened her arms to embrace him anyway. That's, That's when the so t- sad. I know. Sorry. That's when the 27-year-old Best Buy Geek Squad employee shot her in the chest. Uh. Loibel had come to the show armed with two handguns, two additional loaded magazines, and a hunting knife. He may have done more damage to the 120 or so fans who had stayed to greet Grimmie after her show if her brother Marcus who helped her out at shows and with her career, had tackled Loible and held him until the police arrived after he shot his sister. There was no bag check or metal detectors at the show, according to reports. And it's another story that's become common, common enough, an obsessed stalker fan killing the object of his affections, if you I, want to call it. that. And them I affections.
1: think it probably didn't get as much publicity as it would have because of the, the other shooting in Orlando that took place, what, the next night or the night after? Right.
0: And it's funny. They had nothing to do with it. It's not funny, but... They had nothing to do with each no, other. But
1: how easy it is to get firearms.
0: Uh, that's a big one thing issue. thing they have in common. And also crazy people crazy who think people, shooting yeah. people is going to do something for them, and I don't think it does. But Grimmie's story is a little different in that by all accounts she hadn't had any contact from Loible and didn't know he existed. He knew she existed, though he was obsessed with her. I guess that's one silver lining that she wasn't terrorized by him before her death like so many stalking victims are. The 48 hours mystery episode that we watched about this, a two-parter, focused on other women who are lucky and that they're still alive but not so lucky as far as contact with their stalkers go. Polly Perrette, who plays the aggressively quirky scientist (laughs) on NCIS, I have to admit I don't watch, I've watched NCIS a few times, I, and I have an issue with characters that are
1: quirky just for the sake of being quirky, which I won't go into. I have nothing against her, but I don't, I don't like that show. So and, I, yeah, I like her better now like
0: after it. seeing I have, the, no the 48 I just, Hours. I have no problem And with I her. had no problem with her actually on the show. I just felt it was just quirkiness for the sake of quirkiness, which I'm not a fan of. But I digress. She's been the victim of a stalker for about a decade, mm. and she's fighting to get laws passed that will make it harder for people to stalk people. Because despite, and you'll see as we go on, all that's happened over the years there are still so many legal issues that allow people to stalk. And one of the big issues that is a thread that runs through all this is a lot of stalking victims don't like to talk about the fact that they're being stalked. Mm -hmm. And Perret told 48 Hours that one of the things she's trying to do is get people to talk about it. Researching this issue, I watched two really good documentaries from the mid-1990s So more than 20 years ago, they were still saying the same thing and stressing how that has to change, how victims of stalking need to be able to speak out about it and how they need to be taken seriously. Obviously, one of the issues is the more public you make it, the more it feeds your stalker's need to be. Sometimes
1: it does, but it feels like if you don't talk about it, It's just going to go on and on. It will go on and on. You are, you do, I guess, have to worry about making him or her so upset that they would harm you. Right, it's a fine line. I almost feel like saying, okay, you should out the person. Like, if someone's stalking you, then, like the woman, I know you're going to talk about later, but there was a woman who, it was a doctor or something like, I would be tempted to put a sin's name all over Facebook. I know that it's probably dangerous to do that, but it's almost like, okay, if you're going to stalk me, then I'm going to tell everybody who you are and what you're doing. Right,
0: but one, of the, but in the re- dangerous, one so. of the things in the research I've done on this is over the decades, a lot of women who are victims of stalkers, and even on that 48 hours, they'll talk about the stalking, they won't talk about the stalker, or who he is, mm-hmm. because they don't want to give him that satisfaction. Yeah. And and it's a fine line. It's a complicated issue. Perrette also said Grimmie's murder should be, quote, a wake-up call, unquote. Believe it or not, kind of like school shootings, people have been saying that for more than 30 years, yes. too. Every time something happens, oh, this is a wake-up call. So let's go back, earlier than even the 1990s, and let's talk about stalking and its current formation, because stalking, I'm sure, has been going on since as long as there have been human but beings. But the
1: first time I started hearing the term was in the early 90s. Yeah, and
0: we'll find out okay. when that happened. So let's talk about stalking. It's hard to believe, but in the summer of 1982, stalking wasn't a thing, or at least it didn't have a name. That's right. It didn't have a name, and it wasn't taken very seriously. That changed a little with actress Teresa Saldana. Saldana first caught the public eye in the 1978 movie, I Want to Hold Your Hand, The Beatles, yes. hey? when she was 24 years old. But her star really rose a couple years later with a couple small roles and small movies that won critical acclaim. And then her star turned as, as Lenore Lamata in Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. She played the wife of the character played by Joe Pesci, who yes. was... Jake LaMotta's brother played by Robert De Niro it was a big movie and at the time especially because Robert De Niro
1: gained a bunch of weight yeah
0: that's right she not only caught the eye of critics and the public with that role but also of Scottish drifter Arthur Jackson Mm. the 46 year old became obsessed with her he tried to reach her through her agents and other means but wasn't successful then he came to the United States illegally an illegal immigrant Maybe we can put a wall up across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> keep these damn Scottish illegal immigrants from coming over here and killing people. But well, I'm getting ahead of myself. And anyway, he didn't kill her. But he hired a private investigator to find her. Okay, how
1: could he afford that if he was a drifter? Because they're cheap. Okay. How could he afford to
0: come over? I don't know. Maybe drifters <laughs> have money. In any case... He also contacted family members, it's not clear if that was before or after the private investigator, saying he was a representative of Martin Scorsese and was looking for her contact info, but maybe it was both things. In any case, he managed to find her address. Ugh. One night in March 1982, he walked up to Saldana on the street as she left her home in West Hollywood and said, are you Teresa Saldana? Well, I'm sure he said it with a nice little Scottish burr that, you know, sounded innocent. And she said yes. He attacked her, stabbing her in the chest, legs, oh. and arms with a hunting knife. A passing delivery truck driver, who later became a cop, Jeff Fenn, came to her rescue subduing Jackson and holding him until the cops got there. Jackson was convicted of attempted murder a year or two later and sentenced to 15 years from prison. That's it. Well, well he she, she wasn't killed, yeah. she was in the hospital for three and a half months. When he was released in 1996, he was deported to Scotland where he was convicted of a 1966 murder there. Hmm. He had written in his diary that he was on a divine mission and wanted to send Teresa Saldana into eternity where they could be together. How nice of him. And that's according to Variety magazine. After the attack, he wrote her a letter saying he should have used a gun because it would have been more effective and would, quote, have given me a better chance of a reunion with you in heaven. (sighs) I think his reasoning is all a little faulty on that. Yeah, a little
1: bit, but, you know...
0: Saldana was in the hospital for three and a half months, as I said, and later formed the group Victims for Victims, which was the first attempt at getting laws passed that addressed stalking. And so that was the first wake-up call.
1: If he believed in heaven, did he not think that killing somebody would... Apparently not. (laughs) A lot of people have killed in the name of God. Yeah, but they don't necessarily think they are good. Well, okay, maybe they do. But get, I yeah, yeah, I don't
0: think he was the most rational and
1: <laughs> logical thinker in this parade right. of
0: this parade of sad sack killers that we're going to hear about the next 45 minutes or so. None of them are people you'd want to have on your side on a debate team. Let's <laughs> put it
1: that way, yeah. yeah. So,
0: okay. A few months after Saldana's attack, also in LA, blooming actress Dominique Dunn, 21, was ending a relationship with master chef John Sweeney. Mm. Sweeney was a chef at Ma Maison. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right because I don't fucking speak French. But it was a very exclusive restaurant, and he was considered a good chef. Sweeney, 36, was also controlling and easily angered. Her friends and family didn't like him. Dunn, the daughter of writer Dominic Dunn and Ellen Griffin Dunn and sister of the actor Griffin Dunn, showed up at her mother's on a summer night in 1982 after Sweeney had attacked her, so scared she rolled up into a fetal position in her mother's hallway. Uh Sweeney had tried to strangle her, and that was the last straw. She told her mother he was obsessed with her, not in love with her, and wouldn't leave her alone, and that's when she broke up with him. She had the sense to have a friend photograph her injuries, which came in handy, it turned out. She was doing a guest shot on Police Story as a battered teenager, and Mm. the bruises came in handy on the show. They didn't need to use as much makeup, and that's not a joke. It's mentioned in every story about her death that I've read, Mm. including her father's searing account of her trial that that appeared in Vanity Fair in 1984. But Sweeney wouldn't leave her alone. In October 1982, as she ran lines with a friend, actor David Parker, in her house, Sweeney showed up, and she went out into the yard where they got into an argument. Ah. Sweeney ended up strangling her to death, dragging her down a side alley between her home and the one next door. During the four to six minutes it took her to die, Packer called 911 and also left a terrified voicemail on a friend's phone saying, if I die tonight, Sweeney did it. You mean Parker. After... Dominique Dunn was killed, her family remembered a lot of things that should have been red flags. As I said, they didn't like him. One time, when she brought him to visit her father and brother in New York and introduce them, they went all went out to a bar where a patron at the bar, a little guy a guy who was a little tipsy, said, What's happening? Which was her big line from poltergeist. Ah. She played the older daughter in the movie.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: She was so excited that a fan saw her, recognized her, and said that, that she went over to chat with him. Sweeney came out of the bathroom, saw her talking to another guy, and was livid, something that should have been a red flag to anyone. Her family was very uncomfortable with him, but nobody said or did anything about it. His trial two years later was a horror show of 1980s sensibilities, blaming the victim, downplaying his violence against Dominique and his behavior, not allowing testimony from former girlfriends he had battered. You get the picture. (sighs) He was sentenced to manslaughter and was out of prison in less than three years. And for more on that, you can read Dominic Dunn's Vanity Fair story about her death and her trial, which I'll link to our website on our More Stuff page. It's really good. I had read it in the 80s, and rereading it the other night, I remembered so much of it just because it was good. The murder of a young, beautiful, and seemingly loved by everyone actress was another quote, wake-up call, unquote, coming so soon after the attack on Saldana. Dunn's mother later founded justice for homicide victims. Her father, fueled by anger for the rest of his life, devoted much of his writing to attacking attitudes toward domestic violence, including coverage of both O.J. Simpson trials for Vanity Fair and writing a novel based on the Simpson murder case, 1994's Another City, Not My Own. He also wrote a 1990 book, People Like Us, in which a father goes to prison for shooting and wounding the man who murdered his daughter. This was also the era of John Hinckley, who obsessively harassed and stalked Jodie Foster Mm. before shooting Ronald Reagan, James Brady, and others in Washington in 1981 to impress her. It
1: didn't work. Did you know, I was reading about him, he even enrolled in Yale. Just to be close to her. He did, he did. He must have studied really hard. I know, (laughs) wicked hard. Well,
0: people do crazy things. Mark David Chapman shot and killed John Lennon in December 1980 because Lennon was famous. So there were lots of rage from these wake-up calls. Lots of family destroyed organizations were formed. Stalking was recognized as a thing, although it was still yet to be called stalking. We're getting to that. But people also joked about it. There were a
1: lot of jokes about stalking there were jokes, and I want to say so th- the star. reason I re- one of the reasons I remember when it was becoming a thing is because I worked at a at a law office it was like nineteen ninety three and there was a there was a client who was like he was mentally ill was, but, many
0: of them did um
1: he was a petty criminal. he wasn't anything, but he would call the office constantly with issues. And he, he kept calling one day saying that somebody was stalking him. And I thought it was funny because that had just come into the usage, you know, like the uh, the, lexicon. The, uh, the lexicon. And so I wrote that on the, I was a secretary. I don't know why. We thought it was really funny. I wrote it as his message. he's, he being, said he's being stalked. Yes. There was a TV show that, that was supposedly taking place in the early 80s where someone used that phrase. And I remember thinking, you know, it was a lot later. And I was thinking that was not. It was, that an was anachronism. Not, yes, not. I mean, it was right, not right. in public usage. And we're going to get to okay. that.
0: And while this type of thing was happening to women and men all over the world, nothing rivets the public's attention like when it happens to a celebrity, mm. especially a pretty young female celebrity, even more than a former Beatle or the President of the United States. But little was done. And by the way, it still wasn't officially called stalking. Thank you. Then came Rebecca Schaefer. Yeah. Schaefer was a fresh faced girl next door young actress who had risen to fame in the late 1980s as co star of My Sister Sam with Pam Dauber.
1: Yeah, I used to watch that show. Me
0: too, yeah. Schaefer's star was on the rise, and she, like Dunn, was destined for great things. The morning of July 18, 1989, She was waiting for a script to be delivered for a part she was trying out for in Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather III. Since it was the 1980s, usually the scripts were dropped off at the front door of her apartment building on the stoop, and she'd just go downstairs when they rang the bell and pick it up. No email. (laughs) So when Robert Bardo rang the bell that morning, she went downstairs and answered the door. They had a quick, apparently pleasant conversation. She closed the door and went up to her apartment to take a shower. Bardo, 29, another drifter this time from Arizona, I guess we can't put up a wall between California and Arizona to keep people from killing people, went to a nearby diner and had breakfast. He later said he hadn't expected Schaefer to answer the door and was caught off guard. He thought he'd just be talking into her buzzer. I mean, into her intercom. He wouldn't be caught off guard the second time, though. He ate, loaded his gun, put it in his belt, made sure he had the card he had meant to give her the first time, and went back to her apartment house. It was not about an hour after his first visit. This time when he rang the bell and Rebecca came downstairs, he was ready. He went to hand her the card, and as she leaned forward, he grabbed her arm, pulled her to him, took out his gun, and shot her in the chest. His telling of this with some relish, including his imitation of her screams of horror, yeah. which he tells with a smile on his face, can be found on YouTube. No. He was arrested a day later, running around in traffic in Tucson, Arizona where he had taken a bus back home. These stalkers love to take buses, I found out. Wow, yeah. What else are you going to do? cheap. Yep. He confessed to her murder and was sentenced to life without parole. Bardo, more than Sweeney, the one who killed Dominique Dunn, more even than Jackson, Teresa Saldana's attacker, should have been on people's radar. One account says that a high school teacher considered him, quote, a time bomb on the verge of exploding. He was the youngest of seven children of a retired Air Force officer and reportedly was abused as a child. Mm. His mental and emotional issues were clear early on. Schaefer wasn't his first target, only the most convenient one. He later said he wanted to kill a famous person so he could become famous too, but then he said that wasn't true at all, so who knows. Before he killed Schaefer, he'd written a letter to his sister saying he was obsessed with what he could not obtain. Kind of like John Hinckley and Mark David Chapman. And like Chapman, he had a list of possible targets. Hmm. And like Chapman, who killed John Lennon, he had a copy of Catcher in the Rye with him when he shot Schaefer, Ugh. and he threw it up on a nearby roof as he ran from the scene. It was never one of my favorite books. I never liked that book. I thought it was way too self-indulgent, and the fact really that it's the favorite of celebrity killers um, I don't help. know why it... Well, it is, because it, it's teen angst, you know. Boy teen angst. Yeah. Bardo said it was a coincidence that he had Catcher in the Rye, but it probably wasn't. He'd studied up on Mark David Chapman. Mm. His stalking started early in life. In fact, he had an obsession with stalking. (laughs) Uh, At 13, and you'll like this, there's always a main angle. At 13, in 1983, he took a bus from Arizona to Maine to meet Samantha Smith.
1: Oh, that's right. He was obsessed with her, too. He, I remember right. that now. He was
0: obsessed with the child who became famous for writing to Soviet leader Yuri Andropov, asking why we all just couldn't be friends and there couldn't be peace. I can't remember exactly. I used to have to cover and drop off. Andropov. Andropov. <laughs> why can't I? Andropov. Yuri Andropov. It's why not can't we all get
1: along? It's not it pronounced right, Mikhail me.
0: Gorbachev, which it had in one of the accounts I read. Oh, yeah. If those of you who <laughs> aren't from Maine are still struggling to remember who she was... She later became a child star in a show with Robert Wagner and was killed in a plane crash in 1985 at the age of 13 with her dad. Mm. So she wasn't around for long, but left an impression Left an impression on me because I was working in Maine as a newspaper reporter when she died, and it was all her Samantha Smith. Her parents used to come the into the bookstore. Where right, because she was from Manchester, Maine, which was a suburb of Augusta. If Augusta could have a suburb. But when Bardo went up, took the bus at 13 all the way from Arizona to Maine, to meet Samantha Smith, he was simply put by law enforcement on the bus and sent back
1: home. Well that's what they did in the nineteen eighties. Yeah.
0: He'd also targeted Diane Cannon, Tiffany the Diane teen cannon. Yes. Tiffany the teen singer, Debbie what Gibbs Tiffany.
1: Sorry, she had lots of stalkers. She did because she used to sing at malls. So and and, and <laughs> That's those of you yo- young probably don't pa- remember. Probably pedophiles. Um, Debbie
0: Gibson, who was another teen singer,
1: and she was in Heather Locklear film. and others.
0: Oh. But they were all too hard to get to for various reasons. And some of this is in um, a documentary I'm going to talk about in a little while. It's actually not a documentary. It's a episode of Criminal Investigation with Bill Curtis that was on in the '90s. Bill Curtis Bill with a K. And It was actually the precursor to like Dateline and 48 yes, Hours. Yeah, I used to watch this. And if, watching this one, I recall now what a well-reported, well-done show it was, and it doesn't resort to a lot of the sensationalism and repetitiveness and trickery and all sorts of other stupid shit that some of the shows today do. But I digress again.
1: Well, Dateline and 48 Hours used to be a lot different. They did. They back were. in the day. People yeah. have shorter
0: attention spans now, I guess, or something. They're stupider. But, no offense, anybody. Besides studying up on Chapman, Bardo also read a People Magazine article on Saldana's attacker, and I'm sure he read a lot of other things, and he decided to try the P.I. thing, too, after walking around L.A. with a photo of Schaefer asking people if they knew where she lived (laughs) and contacting her agent to try to get her address, and he was shut down. The P.I. who had been convinced, because in one of the many, many letters he sent Rebecca Schaefer, Bardo got a... A, you know, just a fan photo back from her with her name, and he wrote, like, a heart on it. I love you, Rebe- Rebecca, or something. I love you, Robert, or whatever. And he used this as evidence to the PI that he knew her and was a friend of hers or something. He actually could have gotten that DMV information himself. It was public record at the time. You could get it for a buck. Aside from the Samantha Smith thing, this was Bardo's first crazy behavior. While he was a straight-A student, he wrote threatening letters to teachers. <laughs> He was hospitalized at least twice for emotional and mental issues. And I don't know if I said it, but he was 19 when he shot Rebecca Schaefer. No, uh, no. You Did
1: didn't. I say that?
0: In the year and a half before her murder, he was arrested three times for things like domestic violence and disorderly conduct. Neighbors in Arizona said he'd given them the finger for no reason <laughs> and yelled wow. at them and, quote, erupted in rages at them for no reason. And a lot of this is from a news story from July 24, 1989, and the Eugene, Oregon Register Guard Rebecca Schaefer was from Oregon. That's right. Yeah. And this is a really good article. It's one of those Google newspaper articles that's online. You know, obviously in 1989 newspapers weren't putting anything yes. online, and it's rich with information. One of his neighbors said, "quote He was a real psycho guy," and psycho is capitalized, and I don't know if so. I don't know if it means like he's like well, the guy in Psycho, well, maybe. or if he meant psycho, and for some reason the newspaper just capitalized. But Bardo had pleaded no contest to the most recent charges against him. And was sentenced to unsupervised counseling, which he never attended. Eight months before Schaefer's murder, he approached neighbors who were having a party for a fifteen year old girl.
1: Mm. They
0: were Mexican American. And he yelled at them to go back to their country. So he
1: fit right And they in. said, Hey, this was our country first, <laughs> asshole.
0: No, I think they were nice and polite. But one guest told the Oregon newspaper that he also threatened to shoot them all with his 357 mm, Magnum. Nice. So there were some red flags. You may wonder how Bardo got a gun, even back in the 80s when they were giving him away like candy. But That's a writer stuff. on a blog post, and this was on a different blog, but it was shared by blogger Frank's Real Reviews, wrote that Bardo in Tucson in the summer of 1980s, 89 tried to buy a 357 Magnum and correctly filled out the paperwork that he'd been committed to a mental facility. Because, mm. as I said earlier, he had at least two stays in mental facilities. Blogger Frank Wilkins writes that the information, since it's a blog post, has to be taken for what it is. Still, you be the judge. And I'm quoting from this post. Again, Frank Wilkins of Frank's Real Reviews picked this up from another blog about murders and stuff. I can't, and I'm sorry I don't have the name of that blog. But this is a quote. The salesman at the gun store, a member of the Air Force named Bob, told Bardo he could not purchase the revolver. Bardo got a rate and said he wanted to fill out another copy. The salesman sought out help, and Jerome La Rochelle, who also worked at the gun store, told the guy absolutely no way, and he told Bardo he could not own a firearm and to get the fuck out <laughs> because he did not like the vibes he was getting from him. Okay. The two then escorted Bardo from the store. La Rochelle, his friend Bob, and the manager on duty at the gun store hung Bardo's disqualified form on the bulletin board and wrote, all in capital letters, do not sell to this individual. The next morning, Bardo came in with his brother, who bought the same Ruger GP100 Magnum .357 revolver and gave it to his brother when they went outside, which is a violation of federal law. Yes. This is still the blogger. His brother would have known that because it asks you that question on the form and warns that such strawman purchases are a violation of federal law. Bardo then used the revolver to fatally shoot Rebecca Schaefer on July 18. And this is another thread that we see often with this stuff: is that family members are basically enabling people to. No, I wonder if he, did his
1: brother get charged with anything. I don't know. I mean, I know people do. Get charged I, and I'm sorry with if that's bad reporting. No, no. But there's a lot. Uh, I mean, it's a, a long time ago. There's a case here in Maine where a woman got charged. Because of that very thing, she was a, it was a straw man purchase, and the person she got, well, I think, it was her boyfriend or something. Of course, he made women do. That I don't thing. know if he killed somebody, but he, but he, but he attempted to. He shot somebody. I'm trying to remember now. It was right. a couple well, years ago. Right. Well, one thing
0: is, if you can't buy a gun. No,
1: if your boyfriend or brother or whoever can't buy a gun because they're fucking crazy, don't go fucking buy it for them. I think the one I'm thinking of, there was some kind of a domestic violence situation, so maybe Mm -hmm. she was cowed. But what's the deal with his brother? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, sure, crazy younger brother, I'll buy a gun for you. and remember, he would also written
0: to his sister, pretty much implying he was going to do something. So there were a lot of things. But he went back and forth by bus between Tucson and L.A. a lot that summer to try to find Rebecca. And twice in the months before he killed her, he visited the studio where she shot my sister Sam. The first time, according to many accounts, he carried a five-foot teddy bear. Yeah. The second time, he carried a knife. He wasn't mm. let in either time, and it's not clear if anyone knew he had the knife or if this is just his retelling of it. And as I said, he had contacted her agent he had also written her numerous letters over two years. One, and who does this sound like, assured her the letter he had just written her was, quote, the most beautiful letter you'll ever get from any fan. Hmm. We know some nutty people who speak in that type of high. Believe me. And he also wrote letters to others about her and about his obsession with her. She replied to an early letter, and that's the one she had the studio photograph with her autograph on that he used to prove the P.I., And he knew her. He also had a shrine to her in his room, and he carried around a big thick envelope full of letters to her and about her, and photos of her. Uh. The morning he killed Rebecca Schaefer, he said later in an interview before his conviction, the second time he went to her door she acted impatient with him. She was in a bathrobe, she had just taken a shower, she had things to do, she was apparently polite but impatient, And he says that's why he shot her. He is also given the excuse that that after he saw her bedroom scene in the movie Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, which also had Diane Cannon, another object of his Ah. affections, it turned her from an innocent girl into, quote, one of the bitches of Hollywood, and it enraged him, and that's why he shot her. Oh, Kim. But we all know that they all have reasons that they think sound plausible why they shot somebody. He wouldn't have gone to her house, you know, the whole thing about her being impatient with him, he wouldn't have gone there with a loaded gun in his hmm. pants if he wasn't going to shoot her. <laughs> <laughs> a loaded gun in his <laughs> pants.
1: Well, sort of I don't, well, don't want to like give
0: him the satisfaction of a asshole. sexual double entendre. And one side note to the whole Robert Bardo story, the prosecutor in the case was Marsha Clark. Ooh, Marsha. And this was pre-O.J. Simpson fame just he year That's or two before. Right. And Bardo started trying to stalk her from prison. <laughs> <laughs> that was tamponic. You can take the stalker. You can take the... I don't know. But Schaefer's death resulted in, by 1993, almost every state having anti-stalking laws. And you'll read that in a lot of places, but we'll also see that another woman, Kathy Beatty, had a lot to do with that, too. But Schaefer's death, death galvanized people. It was another wake-up call about stalking. It also caused LA to tighten up things like access to public records, yeah. access to DMV records. It also spurred the formation of the LAPD's Threat Assessment Unit, which deals with stalking cases almost exclusively. Was and, that where Pete works? Oh,
1: no, no, Pete's, uh, <laughs> Pete's a that psychiatrist. That's another guy. Oh, that's right, an a
0: stalking consultant. I'm surprised you don't remember that.
1: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you can read But on there the was another account. guy on the, I know, on the the
0: and it gave what was going on an official name. Stalking. Right. So there right. we there. By the mid-1990s, stalking was definitely a thing. A British documentary from this era called I'm Your Number One Fan focuses on some celebrity stalking cases in that country. It looks like it came out in the mid to early 90s. I can't really tell. And as you all know, the title I'm Your Number One Fan comes from Stephen King's epic stalking novel, Misery, yeah, even though the movie's good and Kathy Bates, oh, Misery, is great, the yeah, book and is James really Caan, yeah. but the book is much better and yeah. really makes the stalking a lot more chilling, yeah, than the movie does. But that the documentary focuses on a woman who's obsessed with a singer who we're supposed to know who he is, and I don't because oh, it's one a British of those thing. British ones. Another woman who's obsessed with a DJ to the point where she thinks he's her husband and has a t shirt with his name and picture. A man, a German man, who lives in Britain, who's obsessed with Princess Diana, and also thinks the Queen is the Beast. It's a very interesting documentary. It's mm. cringeworthy in a lot of places. It's frightening, and it's really sad. The, the stalkers obviously all have major mental health issues. Mm. And, but all of them say they're not crazy, they're not stalkers, and they think what they're doing is perfectly normal. Because they're nuts. Yeah. And when they're called out on their stalking, a couple of them were arrested for various things or got in trouble in other ways. They don't have a moment of clarity and realize how off-base they are. They blame the person who caught them or law enforcement or their own stupidity at not doing things differently. Another good documentary from the same time period is the criminal investigation episode that I mentioned earlier. And as I said, this used to be hosted by Bill Curtis, who's now on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Is he? He took over, over. for Carl Castle the a voice. scorekeeper.
1: Yeah, he always makes a funny joke with his name in it.
0: But one woman in this episode of CI that came out in 1994 is Kathy Beatty. And at the time, she was the wife of pro football player Greg Beatty. And she was stalked for years, for like 10 years, by a man that she went to high school with. And she barely knew him in high school. His name was Larry Stagner. Once she went away to college, I think she went to UCLA, and she's from California, he started pestering her with letters and phone calls and visits. This went on for 10 years. Lots of times he'd call her just to tell her he had seen what she
1: was wearing that day. And all sorts of creepy stuff like that. Wouldn't it almost make you want to kill the stalker? It does, and she even says that. She even says... I mean, I would be like, I'm going to run that fucker over next time I see him. She says it changes you as a person. Because you probably get desperate.
0: And so... When he showed up in her kitchen with a knife Ah. in 1990, she tried to reason with him, telling him she'd expected him and asked him to take a seat and they could talk.
1: Ah. He
0: wasn't really falling for it, and as she tried to negotiate with him, she was standing near the telephone, the phone rang, and he let her answer it inexplicably, and it was her mother. Her mother already knew, I mean, everybody knew about this problem. The police even knew, and this is one case where the police were actually kind of sympathetic. because her
1: husband was a football player.
0: Right, but the police couldn't do much about it. Yeah, at the time, yeah. But they knew. So as her mother talked to her, she gave nonsensical answers to her mother's question. Her mother figured out what's going on, and her mother said... Hopefully her mother was smart. Is he there, and are you in danger? And she answered, yes. So her mother called the cops. Meanwhile, Stagner took Kathy out to the garage, tied her up, Ah. then decided to take her away at gunpoint. He had her car keys, and she's like, where's the cops? She tells this very well. And as he was trying to get her into the car... He kind of let down his guard for a minute. She got away, and all of a sudden there were cops everywhere. But uh. there was a 10-hour standoff before they took him to jail. Ugh. And on him they found 180 rounds of ammo, a couple mm. guns, the usual knife. Was just he okay. was sentenced to a few years in prison on some minor charges that were only because he had held her, and he didn't take her off her property, so it wasn't kidnapping. Ugh. It was only attempted kidnapping. He was released from prison in December 1994. In January 1995, he was arrested near her home in California Uh, and was put in jail again. She was in Florida at the time. Her husband played for the Miami Dolphins. And I looked, and I couldn't find out anything else about him on the Internet. I don't know Mm. if he's alive or dead. Beatty couldn't be protected from him, even though the cops knew, until she was attacked by him in her own home. Because there were no laws addressing stalking at the time. Despite the small moves that were made after Schaefer was killed a couple years before, or actually it was just a year before, Beatty helped change that. She helped develop, with her local congressman, the nation's first anti-stalking law in the early 1990s. And by 1993, every state had an anti-stalking law. And so part of it was what happened with Rebecca Schaefer, but Beatty is the one who said, I, she's a real go-getter, and said, I have to do something about this. And remember her name, because we're going to talk about her a little at the end. Okay. One thing I haven't (laughs) mentioned is the disparity between two kinds of stalking. The one that gets most of the attention, the Bardo-type celebrity stalkers, and the much more common domestic violence stalkers. At the time of the CI episode, 1994, there was one case that combined both. Tina Sinatra, the daughter of Frank, was being stalked by her ex-boyfriend, actor James Farentino. Yes, I remember that. And if you younger listeners aren't familiar with James Ferrantino, he was a big deal up until this, and then his career kind of crashed and burned. He was in a lot of TV shows, yes, a and lot his of movies. eyes are too
1: close to go. Yes.
0: Tina Sinatra and James Farantino had had a five-year relationship. She had broken up with him. She describes him, and it's another typical female thing. Oh, he, you know, inside there was a loving teddy bear kind of guy, but he could also be very violent and angry. Which, to me, totally negates the lovable teddy bear inside. You know, everybody has a lovable teddy bear inside somewhere. You know, even Hitler, I'm sure, had one. But in any case, (laughs) it being the 90s, Ferentino used faxes and the telephone to harass Sinatra. She got a restraining order. which he faxes. (laughs) You're You're waiting for
1: the faxes. (laughs) I
0: know. Um, But, but, you know, it's effective. It's like a letter or email. I know, know? I know. And and he violated restraining orders against her. He was charged with enough counts eventually to net him a potential 22 years in prison. Tuck. And she talks in the documentary, the 1994 documentary, about how she didn't want to tell anyone. And like many victims, from the research I did starting in the 80s and all the way to now, and some on that 48 yeah. hours mystery, equate it to rape. And she talks of the need to isolate herself, and at one point says, I haven't had a minute of peace. I'm like a dead woman. Also, a theme that runs through all the stalking research from the 1980s is the stalker trying to rationalize or explain his behavior, doing a sorry, not st- sorry. A lot of it has some victim blaming. Here's a quote from James Ferentino in 2003 to the L.A. Times. My behavior was appalling, feeling so hurt and rejected that I was the victim and I, when I really wasn't. So you inflict your pain on someone else to make them identify with you. Ah, so you. instead of just saying, you know, he was being an asshole or whatever, he has to point out that he was Oh, was, it imp- was hurting.
1: Yeah. Fuck you. And another theme
0: is that the public and those in positions of authority tend to downplay the stalker's behavior and the stalker. Mm -hmm. Many of the obits for Farentino, who died in 2012, referred to his antics and other similar (laughs) words. He was sentenced to 36 months of probation, and he had to go to alcohol counseling and other counseling after, um, and this was, I think, after the documentary
1: was made. It was made while she was still waiting. But it makes focus. you wonder if she hadn't been famous and the daughter of someone who is super famous, and if he she- was
0: still famous? And Ferentino was well,
1: a Well, yes. Ferentino was famous, and the woman he was stalking was not Tina Sinatra. You know, I'm not saying she shouldn't have gotten the attention she deserved. Or she deserved it. They all deserve it. I'm just cynical I, I about wonder whether too. or not. But I also she wonder, on the other
0: hand, if the sentence against him would have been more harsh. Oh, yeah. If he weren't an
1: actor. Although, oh, yeah. again, he, the he laws it was. pretty hard then, at him.
0: Yeah. Well, 36 months probation and going to counseling.
1: If he actually had to go, too. That's the right. thing that pisses me well, off. Well, he went to
0: AA. He dried out, apparently. So let's fast forward to the 48 Hours Mystery 2 part that aired a few weeks ago that we watched. Oh, yeah. So Polly Perrette of NCIS, one of the women the documentary focused on, yes. is pushing to tighten the laws that were first passed by Kathy Beatty by her efforts in the 1990s. And we know a lot more about stalking now than we did when Rebecca Schaefer was killed or when James Farentino stalked. Tina Sinatra. One of every six women and one of, and one out of every 19 men are stalked. Wow. Or at least those are the ones who report it. People still don't. Oh. But the could ma- be
1: being stalked and not even know it. I know. Like Chrissy Gray. Oh.
0: The majority of stalking is domestic violence stalking. Park Dietz, an expert in the 1994 criminal investigation episode, who's frequently referred to, and there's an interesting piece from 1990 I found online where he reviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of letters from stalkers to their victims and does this whole psychological thing that's pretty interesting. But he said the huge majority of stalkings are domestic. And that's still backed up by today's experts. Yeah. We heard that on the 40 well, yeah. And I think as just as people watching, we find the celebrity ones more intriguing, but the domestic ones are the ones that are more likely to result in somebody getting hurt. Both have one big thing in common, the need to control the victim. Mm. And Chris Mahandi, the psychiatrist or psychologist oh, he, on $40. Like, but anyway, he's also a consultant on stalking. Chris Mahandi, not... He, the mm-hmm. police chief in my book,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he's been one for the past 25 years, and because we have the 48 Hours Mystery app, they have little sidebar videos, and he says in one of the sidebar videos, and I don't know why they didn't deem this important enough to put in their two hours of film on this, that to be considered a stalker, a person has to have an obsession with somebody, and there also has to be unwanted pursuit. But he said, by far the most common, there's four kinds of stalking. The most common and most dangerous is domestic stalking by a former partner. Domestic violence homicides often have stalking components, and there's a 74% violence risk rate with domestic stalking. But most of that violence, he said, is pushing, shoving, hitting, what he called garden variety violence. Hmm. The other kinds of stalking are acquaintance stalking, which has a 50% violence risk. And this is when you're stalked by someone you know, but didn't have a romantic relationship with. Like, maybe you stalk your doctor or your dentist. I don't know why I'm picking out medical. <laughs> or, or a
1: neighbor. Or... Yeah, my neighbors. I right. told you I was going to
0: stalk them. There are also two kinds of stranger stalking. Public stranger stalking, which is what the celebrity stalking is. Yes, okay. And he said, well, that only has a violence risk of 2%. It's still, you know, frightening because you don't know if you're in that 2%. Yes. And also, that violence tends to be at a much higher degree than your garden variety because domestic violence. Because when they get the
1: chance to right. actually see the person. They're not going to shove
0: you or slap you or something. They're going to fucking kill you yeah. or try to. And then there's also private stranger stalking, which is, he gave the example, of, like you work at the same mall with somebody. You don't know the person. They don't know you, but they see you and start stalking you. You may not even know they're stalking ah. He didn't give the violence risk percentage for that, but he did say it's frightening because that person has access to you and knows where you are and knows where to
1: find you. So I know. If you work in a place that's public, like if you're a waitress or, or a, you work at retail, in a retail, yeah. I mean, yeah.
0: With all forms of stalking, he didn't say this, but it's something that became obvious on the 48 hours thing, and I think we're all smart people. We would have figured it out anyway. Social media... And the internet have really upped the stalking game. I mean, there was Jimmy Ferentino sending faxes, and the telephone was a big thing, and you had to get out of your off your butt and go follow people around. And now, you know, you mm-hmm. have social media. Yeah. But still, a lot hasn't changed. A lot of what victims say now about police response, how they feel about themselves, and their willingness to talk about the issues is very similar to the women in the 1994 episode. In that one, there's a wow moment. <laughs> where they show this registry that can help ID possible stalkers, and it's in the old computer, you know, the green green computer. Black background, green letters. Yes, and the problem with it is, and I think I saw this on a documentary about something else, but it involves putting a lot of information in. It's supposed to, like, help target potential stalkers. So every time somebody's arrested, you have to put all the stuff in, and cops just didn't want to do it. And they don't say it on that CI episode, but I do remember seeing either reading in a book, Or seen a documentary about something else in the past six months, maybe, where they talk about how the thing didn't work because no cop wanted to sit there and put all that information in. Although this show, it's like, oh, wow, look at this. You can, you know, pick out who's going to be a stalker. It was just so much work. But now with updated computer processes, there's a national registry that works a lot better of stalkers, of people who have been accused or convicted of stalking. There's a lot more training and awareness,
1: but still, that like when it's a domestic situation, you pretty much know that when they're right, doing you know, it, right? You uh, know, right? This is just, I'm just to saying. target people, I you know.
0: know, you know the drifters who get on buses, yes, and that type of stalker. But it's clear in the 48 hours that some of the same issues mm-hmm. per- persist. Despite increased awareness, the women the show focused on almost all said the police didn't take their concerns seriously. Like that one
1: woman who was a lawyer, and they wouldn't...
0: I know. They didn't believe her, her The guy broke into the house. Right, and and they wouldn't believe what she was saying, and then it's like, what did you do to... And she
1: she knew the law, and they still
0: didn't do anything. Right, their concerns aren't taken seriously, there's a lot of victim shaming,
1: women are told they're being dramatic, or overreacting, or asked what they did, or... And I, let me guess what the gender is of the cops that are... It doesn't it, say. I know.
0: Perrette and the others in the show talk a lot about their fear of getting killed and the potential for it. My guess is that's how it has to be focused to get things changed. Mm. But the aspect that was told so well in the 1994 criminal investigation, also on that British documentary, and other things from that era barely touched on the potential to get killed part and touched on something that those 48 hours barely touched on, which is the constant terrorism stopping mm. victims are subject to. Yeah. That's incredibly damaging to their You're health stress. Mm-hmm. You
1: probably can't sleep. I, I mean, I can't imagine what it would be
0: like. Kirk Dietz, the expert in the nineteen ninety four documentary, talks about how terrifying it is to be pursued, watched, and harassed by someone you possibly might not even know, Mm -hmm. or somebody you know, and then have the police not believe you. And I was a little bothered that the 48 Hours Mystery, they kept talking about, the women kept saying, you know, I could get killed, and I understand why they're saying that, but you almost feel like the issues of just what it's like to be stalked like that are downplayed so much by people they try to explain it to that it's not considered a credible argument anymore.
1: Yeah, maybe. Although they did talk about it, and the, the group of them talking together, they were talking about it.
0: Right. But yeah, but that, they don't talk about it as much. No, they do. They keep stressing they, I could get yes. killed. And my feeling is even if you're not going to get killed, it, it, someone's destroying you. you. They're mentally an a, torturing right, you. An
1: attorney
0: in that 1994 documentary calls it terrorism. He says it it's is. terrorism to have someone constantly focused on you wanting to do you harm. Another thing I was bothered about in the 48 Hours Mystery episode was it focused on, I guess you call him a super stalker, Justin Masler. Ugh. He's got more than 100 people on his list, including Ivanka Trump.
1: Mm-hmm. And he
0: apparently travels around the country stalking them, harassing and threatening. And well, now the Secret
1: Service is going to be on his
0: ass. Possibly. And he's, he does constant video selfies of himself just going on and on. The guy is obviously obviously severe phrenic, mental yeah. health issues. Lenora Clear, one of his victims, was on the 48 Hours episode. In some ways, he bears a scary resemblance to Bardo. Some of the, just his mannerisms and the way oh, he looks really? and the look yeah. on his face. And as Bardo said, I'm not a nut, Justin Masler said "I'm 48 Hours, I'm not a stalker. Oh, and on, like that British documentary, all the people stressed how they're not stalkers. They're not stalkers. And I understand the frustration of Masler's victims. But they, in 48 Hours, in a lot of ways, while acknowledging that he's mentally ill, also act as though his reaction should be those of a normal person. And I found it very uncomfortable to watch Aaron Moriarty on 48 Hours badger him in a so-called interview. I thought it was exploitive. It was. Yeah. And there were a lot of other things I could have done in that show. The guys, you can tell by the videos of him how crazy he is. I felt it was exploitive to take somebody who's obviously mentally ill and push his buttons, which she was doing, to have him blow up. And I'm not making excuses for him, but I feel like people kept mentioning mental health issues but not... Talking, but then, then, yeah, like almost gratuitously mentioned the mental health thing. But what they really want to do is have this guy all of a sudden act like a normal person or respond. Yeah, he's gonna, he needs to be. He's been in and out of mental health care, but it doesn't seem like his issues are taken that seriously. And it's another case, too, of him being enabled. One of the big problems is his mother, Randy, who was interviewed on the show. I've eh. she sends him money, and that's one of the ways. Okay, let me, let me say, and makes excuses for him. She described him as quirky and, and said what? And said, you can talk in a second. I know you're going to have stuff to say about this. Calls the stuff he does acting out. He got near-perfect scores on his SATs but dropped out of Phillips Exeter. Joined the Navy but was kicked out after having what was called a psychotic break. He was hospitalized, diagnosed as schizophrenic, and his mother still doesn't seem to understand the, the seriousness of what he's going through. And Ira Moriarty says, wouldn't it be better if you didn't give him money, if he didn't have money so he couldn't travel the way he does? I mean, aren't you in some way enabling what he does? And the mother says, maybe, I never thought about it that way. I thought I was helping him to live a little bit, but I didn't know that he was traveling the country scaring woman. Well, yes, she did, because the Ivanka Trump thing was well-known. She Mm -hmm. knew what his issues were. She knew about Lenora Clare, so she did know he was traveling around the country scaring women, as she says. Randy says she didn't know about Lenora Clare, but it was a well-publicized thing, and since the guy talks nonstop, I'm sure he told his mother, she feels her son is desperate to connect with people even if it's just over a computer. And I don't disagree with that. He said to Aaron Moriarty, I use computers everywhere. It's really easy to get wireless computer access. And so Moriarty asks Randy, do you think he's just lonely? And Randy says, oh, yes. He's trying to reach out to anyone. <laughs> and that's a big aspect of it. Gavin Becker, in the 1994 criminal investigation show, said much of stalking, at least this type, and, and Becker is somebody who's an expert on celebrity stalking, other things is trying to reach out in a way to people. De Becker called himself a voice in the wilderness on stalking for years and this was in 1994 and he said but that desperation to connect can send people with issues over the edge but he also stressed and this was in 1994 and this is one of the little things you get where people actually recognize the mental health aspects that he himself was an abused child or something he doesn't really go into a lot of detail but said he thinks the things that like makes him different from, say, Robert Bardo, is that somebody, when he was developing as a teenager, young man, somebody reached out to him and helped him go in
1: the other direction. But also, he's not mentally ill. That's true. What I was going to say about that Justin guy, I do think his mother, I think she does take his mental illness seriously. I think she doesn't know what to do about it, short of institutionalizing him. So well, maybe think, he
0: needs to be institutionalized. I know, but,
1: I know, but it's not that easy to institutionalize somebody. I know it's somebody. not. And I'm not saying she couldn't be a little bit more whatever. I just feel like she... Part of it is my reaction to the fact they showed their house.
0: They have this beautiful house. Yeah, they're they're wealthy. wealthy.
1: I understand what you were saying about her. I'm not saying she's blameless, and I do think she's got her head in the sand quite a bit about her son, but I also feel like... She doesn't know what she can do about it. I understand
0: that, and maybe this is part of my, you know, prejudice against people with tons and tons and tons of money, is that she certainly has the resources to find out from someone what she can do about it, if there's something to do. Maybe the solution is to just let Justin travel around the country
1: harassing women. I think, yeah, but I think that people who have somebody in their family who's mentally ill and who's homeless because of it, the only way to keep tabs on what they're doing sometimes is to send them money. I understand but she can easily keep tabs on what Justin's doing
0: yes, because true, he takes nonstop video selfies and emails them all over the place, and I'm sure she's on his email list. I
1: know, that's true. So,
0: I understand what you're saying. But I also feel like 48 Hours
1: was ex- kind I felt of exploiting they were both of them, so we don't know for sure that's exactly true. where she stands. It's, easy, it's, it's easy in a short interview to make... I some, felt like in some ways she she seemed naive, but in other times I felt like she was helpless to do anything about it. And I'll concede that point. But then there's also
0: he had stalked Ivanka Trump yeah. and then his brother he went to New York to see his yeah. brother and his brother booked him in a hotel two I know, right two blocks there? from Trump Tower. I know. And what the fuck? The mother I think said in the show and I'm of um, remembering he this was, yeah, he didn't he know didn't... and he just booked him into Right. So it's you know, be a little more aware. I of know. your, if you have a family member who's that seriously mentally ill, and you have the money, well, if to he's going to get shot by
1: the Secret Service. Or, is what's going to yeah, happen? Maybe he will,
0: unless he's given up. He has 108, I think, stocking subjects. So maybe Ivanka, he'll give up on her. Possibly. Yeah. So Gavin De Becker, as we were talking about, had said, you know, a lot of it is they need that contact, and he's not saying that that's the yeah, solution, know. but what they're trying to do is, in a lot of these celebrity stranger talking things, is make that connection. Psychologist Chris Mohandy,
1: otherwise known as Pete,
0: said on The 48 Hours, here's a quote from him. Most people who have serious mental illness will not be dangerous to others, and that's an important point. So you're looking at the unique variables in a particular case that may relate to increased violence risk. From what I've seen of Justin Masler, he has had violent ideas, he's pursued many other victims, he's not dissuaded by restraining orders, and all of those are concerning risk factors. What we need are better resources for those mentally ill people that are in our communities so they can get an adequate level of care and not be allowed to get too far out there with their ideas. Mm -hmm. And Lenora Clare, who's being stalked by Justin Masler and whose father was a psychiatrist, said on 48 Hours that she understands that Justin's behavior is a result of mental illness. And she says, if I could send a message to Justin, I'd want him to know that I do know that he's a person, you know, and that I do believe that people who are mentally unwell can get help and then she says but what he's done to me and others is it's really it's just absolutely awful I agree with that and one issue is it's not just about stalking but I think mental health issues are not taken as seriously as they should be in this country they're not taken seriously in the workplace they're not taken seriously in public. They're not taken seriously by government as far as where the money goes. The government doesn't care. Most of the people incarcerated in this country have mental health issues. And where are mental... And are not taken are, care of. We aren't any public mental
1: hospitals anymore, uh, really. Right. We'd
0: rather use money to just lock people up where their mental health issues are going to get worse, not better. than um, In fact, the guy who was obsessed with Princess Diana in that British documentary started obsessing about the queen while he was in prison because all he ever heard about was the queen, and it started really pissing him off. <laughs> and he too. I can, and I he can had can access, oh, it. this is funny, he had access to reading material was the Bible uh. and British tabloids.
1: Oh, God. So you
0: put those two <laughs> together, and he, and he had this complicated mathematical, you know, the British thing is E, R, 2, like Regina, Elizabeth, 2, for the queen or something. Oh, yeah. And, you know, some symbol they have with their Latin and all their uh-huh. shit. And he had this complicated mathematical formula, and I'll put a link to this documentary on our website because it's worth watching, that went on and on and on, just crazy, crazy shit that showed how if you take ER to the Roman numeral and do all this this like five minute long mathematical thing. It adds up to six six six. so that makes the queen. You know sick. what
1: though? Even if you read like People magazine, they're like obsessed with the royal family. They are too. because they wish we had. Everybody's obsessed You know, with as I them.
0: always say, not to get off on another tangent. We fought a fucking revolution, so we didn't have to pay. For the biggest welfare recipients in the world to live the way they live, yes. and I know they're wonderful and they do good works, blah blah blah. But they are the biggest welfare recipients in the world, and we fought a fucking revolution so we wouldn't have to pay their bills. And bill now we and, still
1: fawn over them. And, and we all still the time. fawn
0: over them and curtsy and wish we were fucking. There was up. something
1: else. I was but, to say. Oh, one thing I wanted to say. They were talking about you know people wanting to reach out and and connect, and I think all you don't want to connect with your stalker though. No. Yeah, but I'm saying all people, when it's celebrities, there are a lot of people that have those same feelings about a celebrity that they admire, but That's they're true. not mentally ill and they're not obsessive. Right. Like,
0: remember the Bob Dylan saying, you know, you all think you're my brother. I don't fucking know yeah, you, I know. you're not my brother. And a
1: lot, <laughs> a lot of them, but I'm sure every celebrity can tell you there's people that are overly familiar with you, people feel that they can just come up and talk to you, or people are they writing you these they know weird you. letters or think they know you, and somebody who's mentally ill thinks that's real. Yeah. Back it, to the 48-hour show that we watched.
0: I like the fact that they have Polly Perrette and the laws. She's trying to upgrade the laws that were passed, you know, two decades ago and that type of thing. But I think a lot of it was exploitive, and there are a lot of issues involved. And another issue that they barely touched on, except for the very, very end of the two hours, is the availability of guns, Mm -hmm. And it focused even less on that than it did on mental illness awareness. Now, Loible, the young man who killed Christina Grimmie, was heavily armed. Mm. While police said there were no red flags that would make anyone think Loible would do anything to harm Grimmie, TMZ and other sources reported he had a hair transplant, LASIK eye surgery, and even became a vegan and and lost lost 50 pounds pounds in order to make himself more appealing to her. See, what I don't understand is why did he... He didn't even like meet her. He just shot her. Uh, well, he wasn't the same person. But I, I, I may be able to explain a little okay. of that. Okay, sorry. Here, he told his one friend, it seemed to be the one close friend he had at Deep work, swat. that she was his soulmate, mm. and he saw God in her. Hmm. He felt I think if he killed her, they would be they, uh, they would have I get a Well, he never told any of that apparently to his family. They said they noticed the physical changes in him. And he also had, apparently, a shrine, kind of similar to Bardo's, Ugh, to Rebecca Schaefer, and just was constantly going on the internet about her, watching YouTube videos about her all the time. He stayed alone in his room most of the time, only leaving to go to his <laughs> Geek Squad job at Best just Buy. Just like you. Just like me. You didn't see the shrines in my room. As we all know, there's a reason I stay in my room by myself. Alone. With my iPad. (laughs) So his family, he lived with his father and brother. And he stayed in his room all the time, except for when he went to his... Did I say he was on the Geek Squad? Yes. Several
1: times. You know what? Our Geek Squad fans are going to stop listening listening, because you're making fun of them.
0: I'm not making fun. I'm just mentioning. But his father (laughs) and brother never saw him with a gun. And he was never diagnosed with any mental health issues. So no red flags. His friend... Loyable's Best Buy boss that he thought Loyable, but he Leubel. told the boss at Best Buy that he thought Loyable's obsession with Grimmie was not normal or healthy, and he thought it was affecting Loyable's behavior, and he was growing concerned about it. But the boss said, since it wasn't a work issue, he wasn't going to get involved. Yeah. No red flags. The Orlando Sentinel reported. The friend believed Loible spent most of his waking hours watching Christina on YouTube, as well as constantly monitoring her social media accounts. Oh, yeah, because she did... And she was all over... She checked she in. Which like, you do uh, when you're you're trying to build a... you know, A she's, base. You have yeah. to build a base. And when the friend told Loible it was illogical to think that Grimmy would want to start dating him since they had never met, Loible got very upset and defensive, the friend told police. The idea of Grimmy rejecting him was out of the question. Oh... So here's more from the Orlando Sentinel's June 22nd story about the killing. So this was a a little while after the killing. Loible bought two 9mm handguns at gun stores in St. Petersburg in the weeks leading up to the killing. A Glock 26 on May 25th, which he picked up after a waiting period of of 5 or 6 days, and a Glock 19 on June 1st, which he picked up on June 7th. So he did do the waiting period, so all legal and everything. He didn't have a criminal record or documented history of mental illness or substance abuse. So he was able to purchase the guns legally. The friend told police he last saw Loyble on June 5th, and Loybel returned a few magazines to his friend's house and said he was, quote, tired and ready to ascend. Uh-oh. And he told his friend he loved him. In hindsight, the friend told police, his words <laughs> seemed weird and sad.
1: But he never heard
0: Loybel make violent threats, and he didn't know he had guns, so again. And I'm not saying everybody should have seen all these things and said the guy's mentally ill, But it seems like nobody except for this friend was paying attention to him either. In his household or at work, I feel like this is an isolated guy who was allowed to to be alone with his obsession and nobody gave a shit or did anything about it.
1: Although to be fair to people around him, you're not going to like assume...
0: No, but if your son in his 20s spends literally all his time alone in his room and has gone through some major physical changes... (laughs) And I and I know I'm, I'm so no, I'm
1: laughing because uh, uh, probably and I'm most alone. guys I'm in their tw- no, I'm thinking most guys in their 20s that live with their parents are probably spend most of their time in their room. I would think
0: they would, but still, I it mean, doesn't sound like anyone was in yes, touch with I
1: understand. Them.
0: And it's kind of what Gavin De Becker was saying about somebody being there to connect. These people are isolated mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, and they're not connecting. But he left St. Petersburg the afternoon of June 9th, St. Petersburg, Florida, where he lived. Got into a cab, headed for Orlando. He paid the driver $200 for a round-trip fare. Nice. Checked into the Courtyard Marriott without any luggage. This is the Orlando Sentinel again. Bought some food from the hotel snack bar and lay on top of the bed covers until it was time to leave for the show. Then he went to the show. Polly Perrette is working hard to raise awareness for stalking and its issues. It's too bad she has to fight perceptions and issues that should have changed with the other wake-up calls 30 years or more ago. There's Teresa Saldana, Dominique Dunn, Rebecca Schaefer, all the way to Chrissy Grimmie, and all the probably millions of people in between who have been stalked and the victims of stalking. The overarching issues are perception and awareness of mental health issues, taking people who feel threatened or terrorized seriously, paying more attention to how people get guns, what kind they get and why. And I fully understand freedom of expression, but what I don't understand is how when someone is being constantly harassed or threatened, under law that we have now, why something more can't be done. And I understand how complex mental health issues can be, but I wish we could get past brushing them off and expecting people basically to act normal or fix themselves. I know. Instead of finding ways as a society that we can help fix people or get them in a comfortable place, I know it's difficult because
1: you can't you want people to have their rights and as a human being but at the same time if the, what they're doing is infringing on somebody else's
0: well and I think one of the biggest life, things too is people who are mentally ill their issues aren't taken that seriously. We saw that with Todd Kohlhepp. We've seen that with a lot yes. of the cases we talked about, and we saw it with a well, lot of. Well, I think pe- a
1: lot of people would just rather not think about it right. until the person goes away. And, that's all they want.
0: And they people want have to, to get past thinking that somebody has to wave a gun or threaten someone's life or be diagnosed with a mental illness. If they're acting in a way that's frightening or weird, maybe there should be some reaching out. And, you know, we talked about Kathy Beatty, the pro football wife. In the 1994 documentary, one of the cops said, you know, we're changing the laws, we're doing this, we're doing that. But the biggest thing is that victims have to take it upon themselves to make themselves safe. And to, I know, and I rolled my eyes, too. And part of me is, yeah, thanks a lot, fucking law enforcement. Why don't you guys, if you guys would get off your ass and listen to people and take people seriously, it wouldn't be as much a problem. But... On that note, Kathy Beatty, who ended up at some point divorcing her pro football husband, is now the. I looked her up online to see because she was scared as shit that when her stalker got out of
1: prison,
0: she was going to get killed. And so I wondered what happened. She is now Kathy, the safety chick. She appears on TV. She has a reality show. And her big thing is teaching women how to empower themselves, teaching self-defense. And we'll link to her online, too. And so she took that to heart, and despite the yeah. fact that she worked through channels to get laws changed, there are, are a lot of cases where laws aren't going to help people, and and I think it's up to everyone to not be frightened and paranoid. Well, like, to talk about it. But to talk about it, to get awareness out there, but also to do things to make yourself safe. You know, there's things you can do on social media.
1: Yes. There but I do think things. the more the more public you are about it, the less power the stalker has over That's you. That's true. And we're talking about two kind of yeah, two-pronged two, two, things. Yes. No, so yeah, I'm not So how disagreeing you deal with you. the stalker yeah. is that, but
0: just how you deal in your daily life, whether you're being stalked or not, what you put on social yes. media,
1: yeah,
0: how you behave, how you perceive the world around you, and, I, and like I said, I'm not talking about being all paranoid and hiding in your house and thinking that there's a murderer behind every tree and that type of thing, but to be more aware of what's going on around you. But what you do publicly and what you do privately and, you know, all sorts of things. I think the big conclusion from that is while we have made some strides, there's a lot left to do. It was kind of funny, the things in the 48 Hours Mystery that Polly Perrette was talking about that were kind of these revelations to 48 Hours Mystery, that if you look at the 1994 criminal investigation, or read stuff, Yeah, read Dominic Dunn's story about his daughter's murder and stuff, are things people were talking well, every about. every day. Days. I
1: mean, and we know here in Maine the crime rate's pretty low, but most of the crime is domestic violence, most of the serious crime. A lot of times it does have a stalking element. If someone leaves their spouse, usually it's the woman uh, leaves. Uh, you know, the guy will go into her workplace and shoot... Her, there was one a few years ago where the guy drove through the window of the, the um, office where she worked and one of her co-workers died. I'm sure somewhere in this country, every single day, there is somebody, a former partner, is trying to harm them. And that needs to be taken seriously. It does. I feel like restraining orders need to be taken seriously. It's not worth taking one out if somebody's going to be able to get to you. Yeah, so. Or in that
0: 48 hours where the the woman, the one who's the lawyer, oh, yeah. said, you know, and the, it, cop... the restraining order was he couldn't get within a hundred yards of her, so he would park 105 yards from her house and, and I, just and sit I, there. I mean, and that's
1: okay. I mean, I'm not saying it's okay, but by law... It's legal, but a cop could still say, hey, I saw you over there. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? You know, there's a difference between following the law strictly and trying to taunt your victim still. And I also feel like, as I said in my in my text to you, that when a woman complains about something, I don't even want to say the word complain. When a woman goes to the police about something, take her seriously. In our society, that doesn't happen. That's why so many women who are
0: raped, sexually assaulted, don't report it because they know what's going to happen when they and do it. And I, it's still frankly, as
1: I said before, if, if somebody who was in some kind of position of uh, either famous or some other kind of powerful position. It raped me. I don't know if I would bother because no, nobody's who gonna wants believe to get you? dragged through the
0: mud? You know, and that's why, and we'll talk about it in, in the near future. We're going to do an O.J. Simpson episode, yes. why Nicole Simpson had so much trouble with the constant stalking and battering by O.J., even she couldn't get taken seriously because look who her he husband was. Very,
1: hey, you know who you didn't talk about at all, though, was David Letterman, and he had that poor I know, well, stopper. there
0: were a lot. There were many, many people. Michael J. Fox got more than 6,000 letters oh, really? from someone.
1: I just couldn't. I yeah, mean, too We've gone on for
0: a long time, and there were just too many. And, you know, it's,
1: uh, he used to joke about her on his show a lot, and then I think someone spoke to him and said, so, yeah, you don't, know, don't joke about it. Yeah, and then she killed. Her. She was sad. But I know anyways, it. Is, a lot of it is
0: a lot of it is sad. sad because a lot of these people. Frankly, one of the things I felt about Justin Masler when we were watching the Forty Eight Hours, I, you know, people were like outraged and everything at him. I just watched him and said, "Here he, is a very sad, mentally ill guy." And I also defy anyone to watch that British documentary. You're no- I'm your number one fan. That I'll link to again on our website and not feel the complete and total sadness of watching these people talk about their obsessions. And on one hand, it's things that people would laugh at. They get laughed at, and it's just brutally
1: I think sad. sometimes you laugh at it because it's so preposterous, but you still feel bad. Well, part of laughing at people who behave that way is because you're looking at them
0: through this prism of... We're all normal people and here are normal people acting this way. And they're not they're not they're they're ill.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: And it's sad when somebody who's ill is laughed at instead of taken seriously, who's mentally ill. And I really my big issue with that forty eight hours mystery was how I felt Justin Masler and his mother, I agree with you, were exploited in a lot of ways on that show. But, but I show also could have been feel like,
1: you know, even the domestic stalkers, there is an element of mental illness there. There is. are an obsession. Yeah, right. they're obsessive. But as we know, the legal definition and
0: Matt. Yes. I don't know if we've talked about this with Matt before or not. But no, we haven't, but we should talk We should,
1: because. Them. The difference between the medical definition and the legal definition yes. or whatever, yes.
0: And some of it has to do with planning the person's murder. Yes. You know, Robert Barrow, His defense argued that he was schizophrenic, but that didn't matter. He was
1: still found guilty and, and convicted. I, and to I, yes, because he, and there was another one I just and, was And and John to. Sweeney,
0: the one who killed Dominique Dunn, his defense lawyer successfully argued, and it's very frustrating that it kind of happened in the passion of his anger <laughs> at her, and but he. In, there were indications that he planned to go over there and fucking
1: kill well, her. Well, obviously. And he had attacked her before. Like, wh- like okay, oh, he, they were in this... It was a passion of the moment because they were fighting. Well, they were fighting because he went over to
0: her fucking house. Well, that's a trial, and I've seen this done before, but maybe this was the first one that happened. It took four to six minutes for her to be strangled uh, to death. And the lawyer... That, oh, we just... The, just yeah. the prosecutor said, okay, here's four minutes. And Dominic Dunn says in his account of it, everybody in the courtroom sat there in silence except for the defense lawyer and Sweeney who whispered to each other through the whole thing. Which, to talk about lack of respect. If I were on that jury... And I know! The jury was hot and they wanted to go home, so they, you know... It's just, you know, whatever. He, somebody, one of the jurors actually said that on TV later. That they were they were kind of hung up, but they were hot and wanted to go home, so they just agreed to the lesser charge. But yeah. So that is stalking in a nutshell. and Yeah. I, like, I find I just find it a fascinating. It is fascinating, but it, it, it's, it's also sad. It's and sad and it's scary. If it's, you're the person, I can't think of I, many things. If you're especially you some of these people desperate. for years, must, for ten years, it must years. be a
1: desperate feeling. I I have sympathy for anybody that that happened to. I don't care who how famous no. they are. No. Or if, how if rich you're famous, they are. If you're famous or rich, scary. you're still person it's scary you still feel like i mean like that, that that sandra, sandra bullock. bullock she sounded scared as shit right and She's i thought in for her, her
0: closet and she sounded like any scared woman hiding woman. in her closet yes. while some nut job was trying to get in her bedroom oh. so speaking of matt we're not talking to him about um what that night. i can't remember but we'll remember when we get when to we it. see him hi yeah. matt hi matt here we are with Matt Nichols from Nichols and Churchill in Portland for our weekly Ask Lawyers segment. Hi Matt.
2: Hi ladies.
0: So today we're going to ask, this sounds this sounds a little like a wonky kind of question, but it's actually really relevant at least here in Maine. It seems like the state frequently asks for a harnish hearing in Maine. My understanding is that harnish means because of very specific reasons a person's constitutional right to bail is denied. It seems like it should be rare, but it happens all the time in Maine Capital cases. Your thoughts on that?
2: Sure, you have to go back. Unfortunately, I'm going to take you on a little trip back in history. I feel like <laughs> Mr. Wizard with the, uh, way, with way, the back way back Machine. machine. The main Constitution allows or provides that uh, people accused of crimes shall be admitted to bail. And we have, there are two purposes for bail, cash bail is imposed if there is a risk of flight. That is, the cash bail is uh, imposed to ensure the appearance of the defendant at all the proceedings. Second, there are conditions that can be imposed. The conditions must be based on uh, the state's interest in, to, to quote the statute, the bail code, to ensure the integrity of the judicial process. So if you have, let's say, a case where uh, of a violent crime, a, a, the court will impose a condition that says defendant shall have no contact with the alleged victim. The main Constitution, uh, let's say, uh, Article Ten, sec- Article One, Section Ten, does uh, makes an exception for formerly capital offenses. Now, as we all know, Maine used to be part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and Maine abolished the death penalty long ago, fairly early in the 19th century. So that's why we now, today, we use the term formerly capital offenses. And those formerly capital offenses uh, range from murder uh rape, which is distinguished from today, we have gross sexual assault. Yeah. And that has a there's a plethora of ways that crime can be committed. But rape was forcible rape. That was a formerly capital offense. Uh arson of a residence in the nighttime was a formerly capital hmm. offense. Well, because
1: it could be and possible murder, I would say.
2: Well, but that, there's a whole interesting yeah. story uh, that I could tell you ladies. We could talk for an hour just about the formerly capital offenses and I've litigated the arson issue and uh, won a case with a dormitory being burned down but that's another story for another day. Mm. Back in the days, we um, it had to be arson of a residence in the nighttime. Barn burning was okay. Oh, okay. It was not a formerly capital offense. Burning down churches was not a formerly oh, wow. capital offense. Mm, yeah. Burning down meeting houses Churches was not a formally capital offense, so it had to be a residence, had to be at night. Also, burglary of a residence while armed Mm. was a formally capital offense. Today, people kind of get a slap on the wrist for nighttime burglaries of residences, but those that was the group. So, the state now prior to about 20 years ago, these offenses, person was charged with these offenses, right? They had to be indicted, so that meant there was something of an adjudication, that is a grand jury process where a group of people hearing one side of the story found probable cause to believe the person committed a formally capital offense. And that was enough to extinguish the person's right to bail, period. The law has evolved to the point now, uh, that's enough for the history lesson, the point now where the person is charged with a formally capital offense, the state can request a Harnish hearing. The Harnish case, State versus Harnish, is a 1986 Maine Supreme Court case that really defined these ground rules. It was based on a case called State versus Fredette, which was cited about a year or two earlier. But basically the way it works now is so-and-so, Mr. Smith, is charged with one of these four only capital offenses. The state either relying on an affidavit for probable cause, which supports the arrest of the person, or if they already have a grand jury indictment, there's finding a probable cause. Now the state has to ask for a harness hearing in which they, the state, has the burden of extinguishing the person's right Mm, to bail. Always keep in mind, the judge still has, unlike the old days, Even if the state establishes probable cause to believe the person committed a formerly capital offense, the court still has the authority, the discretion, to grant bail. So, our system has changed from automatically extinguished based on a probable cause finding to now, if the state has the burden, showing probable cause at a hearing, an actual hearing, and still the right bail is not, the bail as a matter of right is extinguished, but the court still has discretion to say, okay, some component of cash, if there's a risk of flight, and or some conditions to ensure the integrity of the judicial process, I can release Mr. Smith bond.
1: Okay, that's uh, yeah, I didn't okay, well, that makes sense that makes a lot of sense, yep. it's
2: very rarely used in anything other than murder cases. Yeah, I've is. had experience with it being used in an arson case it involved a dormitory at St Joseph's College. By the way, my client was ultimately acquitted of four counts of arson, hmm. so i you know I don't know how to do appeals because you only have to do appeals when you lose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: but huh? you can file appeals but, for um, other lawyers, right? I mean, yeah, it does
2: have to. Uh, but yeah, but I'm not big on <laughs> right. research and writing.
1: Right? Yeah, I know. What <laughs> yeah,
0: in fact, the one the one case I'm familiar with recently that the newspaper I worked at covered, the one case where the defense was successful in getting the guy bail was not a murder case. It was a it was an assault case, and in none of the murder cases. That I'm familiar with as a is a journalist. Have I
1: seen the they probably already successful. so if they're already indicted, they don't usually have a harness. No, they, they they do. You're uh, entitled still, to the
2: harness here. Oh, you because you
0: once you're indicted, then you get arrested, and once you're arrested, and I know I'm oversimplifying this, but I'm not a lawyer. You know, then they get arraigned. Mhm right and then sometimes the state asks for a harness hearing which is scheduled sometimes after the arraignment because they want and the person is usually held right without bail until the harness hearing they have a week okay Okay. they have a
2: week to have the harness hearing the defendant can waive that time limit if the defendant wants more information I've had one uh, defendant in a murder case who was indicted who was released on bail and the arson case was interesting because I think we were, we were able to convince the court that this was not a formally capital offense. Well
0: did anyone die or was it just a No, prison?
2: but it was arson, if the dormitory at night. At right. Yeah. The so state's position was it's a residence. And we went back with oh, a lot of ancient not. research okay. and said, No, this is not a residence under the old Massachusetts. Oh, nice. The Massachusetts Bay Colony, the (laughs) laws—it was not a residence, and as I said, it was not a capital offense to uh, burn down a church, a meeting house, or a barn.
0: Or a barn, which may need dormitory. Right, Mm. Mm.
2: burning barns.
0: Oh, geez, that rings a bell. Yes. Are we talking mrs fry over here <laughs> We're ta- we
2: may be talking um uh <laughs> mr uh, louis, uh, we may be talking of uh, my uh, one of my favorite teachers mr. of all hilliard? time louis hilliard yeah
0: but we digress <laughs> one thing about harness though so that's unique to maine because I thought it was a, I mean, do other states have similar
2: things? Uh, I'm going to confess, I have no idea.
0: Okay, then we will we
2: just <laughs> cut that
0: out of the... Because ours is, so tied
2: to, ours is so tied to Particular the, colonial case. Yeah, the colonial code of well, uh, the, the Massachusetts the logic behind, behind colony. It that makes
1: sense because the residents at night, people would be sleeping. Hey, well, thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you again next week.
2: Thank you, ladies. <laughs>
0: Well, we both had busy weeks, so we didn't think of what our recommendations were going to be until we drove over here, but you started talking about the movie All About About Eve. Eve. Well, we were
1: talking about movies that we liked.
0: So we decided for our recommendations that we'd each do a movie we like, maybe an old-timey one. That we could recommend to people that we really like, but maybe is not on a lot of people's radar. So, did you want to go first?
1: Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. So, All About Eve is a movie, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, but Betty Davis plays a a stage actress, Margot Channing, who is first befriended by. Do you remember what year it came out? 1950. Thank you. I believe. She's befriended by a young actress. who kind of insinuates herself into her life and then tries to take over. Oh, her like life.
0: single white female.
1: Yes, it's almost they're... a stalker situation. Oh, it is. Kind of, well, yeah, because she kind of does stalker at the beginning. I didn't think about that.
0: Well, wouldn't you think ta- trying to take over someone's life? Well, is,
1: uh... it, it's not like single white female where she tries to literally take over. She wants to be famous, and there have been a lot of kind of remakes and takes on that same kind of story. But the, probably the original one, I guess. I remember there was one with, or maybe them. the best. There was one I saw with Lonnie Anderson and. <laughs> I can't remember, she was in the older role, I can't remember who the younger girl was. Someday we'll have to talk about WKRP in Cincinnati, Yeah, speaking of Lonnie. Lonnie. Anyways, let me get back on the subject. So, it was nominated for 14 Oscars, and Betty Davis and Ann Baxter, Ann Baxter plays Eve. She and Betty Davis both were up for Best Actress. So they lost to Judy Holiday, I guess. Mm. Celeste Holm plays Betty Davis's friend. And I think that the husband in the movie, Celeste Holm's husband is, I believe, he's the playwright in the play. Margo's in maybe, I don't know, but he's kind of boring actor, I can't mm. remember his name. Uh, Gary Merrill plays her husband in the movie, and I liked him very much in that movie. I hadn't seen him in many things, and that was the movie I guess they fell in love. And
0: they had their house in Maine, yes, near two lights. Near two lights, In Cape yes. Elizabeth, near where We're, we live.
1: And near where that picnic happened where that guy his wife in 1993 fell fell to her death. I actually never thought about why I always liked this movie until we started talking about it tonight. One of the things it's a very female centric storyline. Betty Devers' husband Gary Merrill he is a part of the movie but he's not, his character doesn't drive any of the plot along. There is a, a theater critic. He's the only one who's kind of driving the, the storyline as the male. Uh, Margot Channing and Eve and the friend Celeste Holm, who oh, I can't think of her characters. you think I've seen it so many times, I would. But I like the fact that when Margot is trying to tell people, when she first notices Eve trying to get the best of her. Her husband poo-poos it. But then he does finally come to her side. But the other guy, Celeste Holmes' husband, I think is too dim-witted to notice. But she and Celeste Holmes are best friends in the movie. And and Celeste Holmes and her apparently could not stand each other throughout the movie, but they're both such good actresses. I believe that, I mean, their friendship seems real. It's very natural, even though you think of old movies as kind of... Um, Dilted. Stilted. Yeah, it kind of affected, like especially Margot. She was kind of sarcastic and bitchy and difficult, but or you could empathize with her.
0: I like characters who
1: are difficult and bitchy, but you can <laughs> empathize with I mean, you really rooted for her... Even though she wasn't... You could tell that she was a kind of... I can't explain it, but she, it was a complex... It's a complex character, Would you, which is good. It's a, now, I have to admit,
0: I've never... If I've seen it, I don't remember seeing it, so it, been, it. I would enjoy it. I think I would, and I'm going to go find it and watch it.
1: Now, it would be characterized as a drama, right? It's not Yes, a it's a drama. It's not a comedy. There are funny moments where, mostly Margo, where she... The most famous line is, buckle your seatbelts, run for a long night. for a bumpy night. Sorry. Yeah. Buckle your seatbelts, run for a night. And I never knew night. that's what came... She what says that... that? that at, she has this party at her house where she gets wasted, which... Everyone got wasted all the time. And that's well, the was scene where maybe. Marilyn Monroe is in the scene, and she hardly says, I think she has two lines, but for some reason they. it was after she got famous they put her up on the marquee as being in the movie, which... She kind of is. Well, I love that movie. I could watch it again and again. You watched again. it
0: recently? Have you seen it recently?
1: Probably a few years ago. I've watched it again. Maybe
0: I should find it and maybe we can watch we it. We can with Mom. watch
1: it with my Oh, Mom would like it, yeah. Cuz
0: we're always looking for stuff on Saturday and Sunday to watch since MSNBC's usual shows aren't on.
1: Oh, yeah. Got what would Mom do without MSNBC? Oh, she wouldn't.
0: It's funny cuz she's become an obsessive Saturday night live watcher. <sighs> and like, I can't stay up that late. I see I'm the old fogy in the house. But like this morning, she goes, "Oh, it was so funny. Um, you know that woman? You know who I'm talking about? Played what's his name, mm-hmm. and it was so mm-hmm. funny." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking." So, wow. it, were, were you gonna say any more about All About
1: Eve? No, just that I think that don't it stands people the test who of don't want to watch movies because they're old and they're black and white. Really are missing, missing out, out. Because they're... I mean, and I'm not a movie snob. I'm not one of these people, oh, you have to watch it's it a because... Film. No. no. I mean, I watch something for entertainment value. That is all I give a shit about. But that is just... I love that movie. Yeah. I just do. But anyway, the movie I'm going to talk about, I think it's in black and white.
0: I have to admit, I don't know that I've ever watched it on a color TV. Yeah, because we had a black and white TV the 80s. Growing up, and this was Mr. Roberts. Oh, yeah. And it was on when we were kids growing up, Channel thirty eight and fifty six from Boston just played yeah, movies all the time. That so that's probably where movies. I watched it the
1: most. Yeah.
0: I don't watch it recently. We should and, watch that too. We'll and have so a double feature. We should. And this movie is different from yours. It's considered a comedy. It was made in nineteen fifty five. And the plot is Henry Fonda plays a lieutenant or something on a cargo ship in the navy and they're kind of out of the fight, even though they're in the Pacific somewhere. Jimmy Cagney plays the the uh, captain of the ship and he just does not he has a perfect record at I don't know not getting bombed or whatever mm-hmm. and doesn't want to get involved in the fighting and Henry Fonda feels like he's missing the war and is constantly not only asking for transfers, but bitching to the captain about things that are wrong and things, and he drives the captain crazy. Jack Lemmon, who I think is one of the reasons I really like this movie, he's one of my all-time favorite actors, and I've read a couple reviews of this movie because I wanted to refresh my memory that talk about him hamming it up, and I don't consider his acting hamming it up. The character he plays, Ensign Pulver, is kind of an over-the-top, Goofy energetic guy. Think of if it, you guys aren't that familiar with Jim Carrey. A, is it a play? Was it a It play? was a play okay. and Henry Fonda played that his character in oh, play as well. For, okay. Oh no, no Henry he played Fonda
1: the same, played oh, okay. uh, Mr. Roberts. Yeah, okay, Mr. Roberts.
0: So Mr. Roberts who's Henry Fonda mm-hmm. and Jack Lemmon are bunk mates. And his, his biggest goal in life is to stay out of the captain's way to the point where the captain doesn't even know he's on the ship. Mm. And he's kind of lazy. He's one of those people with a lot of big schemes and clever schemes and ways he's going to get back. He has a running thing about how he's going to get it, the captain, mm-hmm. these practical jokes he's going to do that are really going to get him, but he never does them. And Mr. Roberts, like Sons and Palmer, kind of tolerates, and they're total opposites. There's a lot of really dated things, the nurses, they're spying on the nurses on the island and that kind of thing, but the big plot point comes when they've been through a really rough time and they're going to have a liberty on this island, you know, where all the guys get to get off the ship, and something happens, Mr. Roberts does something to piss the captain off, and he he rescinds their liberty and the guys really really need it. They're fighting with each other, they've got major cabin fever and so Mr. Robert kind of makes a deal with the devil with the captain to get the guy's liberty promises to not put him for any more transfers and to not complain anymore and to do everything and to behave the way he walk, toe the line the way the captain wants him to. So the guys get their liberty it's a disaster. They trash the town, and Marty Milner, one of my favorite actors from the 70s, has a cute little has a cute little short part in that. And the guys just get drunk and trash. It's the best liberty ever, but the ship gets thrown out of the harbor, and the captain's pissed because his perfect record at whatever has, has not is now tarnished. Meanwhile the guys are all pissed at Mr. Roberts and feel disillusioned because he's being such a hard ass now and not putting him for transfers. Oh. And they don't understand it and they are upset with him. It comes to light and I know maybe this is a spoiler alert but the movie's sixty whatever years <laughs> old so the captain calls Mr. Roberts into his quarters to ream him out over the over the chaotic disaster of a Liberty And they get into this big argument and comes out why Mr. Roberts has been behaving the way he is. You know, the captain said, you promised me if I gave them liberty, blah, blah, blah. And the microphone's on. So everybody in the ship hears it and then they realize why Mr. Roberts is acting that way. And so all the guys get together and put in a transfer and forge the captain's name. Hmm. And I don't know if you find out about this now or at the end of the movie. And it's all Ensign Pulver is the one behind it. And so Mr. Roberts ends up getting transferred into the action. World War II is coming to an end, but he finally gets on a battleship. And Ensign Pulver gets his job of being, the he has to grow up a little. And um, meanwhile, one of the ongoing themes through this movie is the captain has this palm tree that was given to him as an award. And every morning he comes out and waters it. And Ensign Pulver is always saying, I'm going to throw that palm tree. Oh, and Henry Fonda at one point throws the palm tree overboard. Captain gets a new one and chains it down. Oh. And Ensign Pulver's always saying, oh, I'm going to throw that, you know. So Ensign Pulver's there, and he's kind of grown up, and, you know, he's not acting like a goofball anymore, and he gets a letter from Mr. Roberts about how he's in the thick of things, and but he still treasures they made this medal for him, the Order of the Palm or something out of a that looks like a palm tree because he threw the palm tree overboard. And he says, I treasure that more than any medal I may get. And then Ensign Pulver opens another letter, and it's from a friend on the ship. And Mr. Roberts was killed. No! After he... And so Ensign Pulver... Spoiler
1: alert. It is a
0: spoiler alert, but it's one of the reasons I like this movie. Ensign Pulver gets up. He marches over to the palm tree, pulls it out by its roots. Oh, by the way, the captain is now telling him how wonderful he is all the time because he's just towing the line and being a goof. Throws it overboard, then goes, (laughs) knocks on the door of the captain's cabin... Hampton's like, who is that? He comes in, it is I, Ensign Pulver. And I just threw your goddamn palm tree overboard. And what's all this crap about no ice cream or whatever? And I know it sounds, the whole thing sounds kind of trite, and you just heard the entire plot. And you're nodding off to sleep. Mm, but no, one thing yet. I really have always liked, besides I like that type of plot, is Jack Lemon is a great actor. I think he was underrated in a lot of ways. People think you know he's a goofy or a ham he does a lot of physical humorous type acting you know he's got one of those faces that lends itself mm-hmm. to being goofy and funny uh, he i you know i've mentioned Jim Carrey he's kind of like an earlier version although i think a better actor and not as annoying i thought <laughs> I but he also is a really good dramatic actor mm-hmm. and the and the arc from being this goofball to his to what happens in the final scenes of that movie, I just I've just always loved, and that's one of the things I watched about that change he makes. Mm-hmm. And you know, Henry Fonda's good. I I'm a fan of his, and I always loved Jimmy Cagney. So it's got a good cast. It's funny in a lot of ways, but it tells us it tells a story. It tells it well. It it speaks to a certain era. I don't nowadays it would be considered I think a little superficial and but. I just love Jack Lemmon, and that was one of his earliest movies. He actually got the Best Supporting Actor, Ooh. yeah, he must Oscar for that. Ooh. And so I recommend that movie just because, to, just to watch Jack Lemmon act. Okay, you know. And so I guess that's our show, yeah, for
1: tonight. Yes.
0: And did have we we should do our usual our Twitter, yeah, we driving stuff and our. Website crime and stuff online, which we've mentioned a couple times tonight, not only has all our previous episodes and ways to subscribe, but also the page more stuff, which has links to to some of the articles and videos and stuff we watched as we research. Materials. Yeah, not
1: all of it, but some of the you stuff know, we like. Yeah, some of because I do share. a lot of it. I mean, I look at a lot of different things. Um, there might be some, yeah. and some
0: of it's just stuff we want to share with people because we think it's pretty cool. Yeah. And if you want to keep us going, you can on our site donate to Patreon and for two dollars a month or five dollars a month become a patron and get some of our merch that's upcoming, some yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. And we'll have some of that on our website soon. We okay, you did some really cool little logos for our patrons. And we'd like to thank Think Tank Co-working for yes. letting us record thank here. Thank you. And thanks to Matt. And to sound uh, SoundJay.com, where we get all our sound effects <laughs> sound and effect. music
1: for free. Except for the traffic going by. Except for the traffic going and by. The and the upstairs. lady walking around upstairs. Yeah, we
0: have a neighbor upstairs. We didn't know there was an apartment upstairs. An apartment upstairs at Until Think recently. Thing. Okay. So that's it, and we'll talk to you guys next week when okay. we'll have another exciting yeah. crime
1: and stuff. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Jesus Christ, who's the fucking
0: asshole? who leaves time on the microwave. You know, there's a special place in hell for people who do that. Huh? Some dick left, left for like 46 seconds on the microwave. I don't know who the fuck does that.
1: the ghost of
0: <laughs> <laughs> Some asshole. Uh. Oh, the thing was on.